This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And as I think everyone knows at this point, recently news broke that there is confirmed forensic evidence of cannibalism at Jamestown. Indeed. We, lots of people wrote us to make sure we knew we had heard the news. Everyone. Uh, not every, many, many people. Uh, and then many, many people also asked us if we were going to podcast about it. The and answer it, is yes. Yeah, at first the answer was, I don't think I have anything to say about that. But then the more people asked, the more I thought, maybe I should look into this. Maybe we should take a little time, see what this what this is all about. So we did. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, so we'll give you a little background on Jamestown and kind of how it came to be that they found themselves in a position where cannibalism was the option that they were going to need to engage. Right. So Jamestown was founded in 1607, and it was the first permanent English colony in what would become the United States. The Virginia Company got a charter from James I to establish a colony in the Chesapeake area. And this was actually a for-profit venture. The goal there was to find gold, to raise silkworms, and to find a water route to Asia. And the focus on profit actually set the tone on where the settlers were putting their priorities. So, for example, given the choice to build a house or chop down lumber to send back to England or between digging a well and searching for the gold, they would choose the latter, like the profitable enterprise. Right. So I think people have an idea that people were sailing from Europe to, quote, the New World to uh 
seek opportunities or to escape religious persecution. And while that was the case in some areas, that's not what was happening in the early days of Jamestown. The early days of Jamestown were about making money. So the people who were traveling to Jamestown sailed on three ships. They were the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery, and they were under the command of Christopher Newport. These ships landed on Jamestown Island and established James Fort on May 14, 1607. There were no women on these first three ships. Um, this was really a military and exploratory settlement, not a town with homes and families in it. There were no women in Jamestown until late September of 1608 when a ship brought all of two of them. I'll let that settle for a moment. Uh, (laughs) They wound up on the James River, which is about 60 miles from the mouth of of Chesapeake Bay. And while some accounts say that they chose this location because the water was deep enough for them to bring the ships close into shore, they built a fort in a more secure location. So warships couldn't just sail up the same channel and fire directly at their fort. The relationships with uh, Native Americans in the area were strained. There were times when the colony was basically hobbling along, along with help from nearby tribes. And at other times, the colonists and Native Americans were actively at war with one another. And some historians really think that this colony was doomed from the start. Uh, there were craftspeople and laborers aboard some of the ships, but a significant number of the settler- settlers were gentlemen. They weren't used to manual labor. They weren't expecting to do manual labor. Uh, and the swampy ground in the area was not great for farming and building. So combined with the ongoing fighting that was on and off happening with the Algonquin tribe and the infighting among the leaders of the colony, things really were on a downhill slope pretty quickly. Half of the original settlers were dead within a year. And really, although the starving time gets a lot of the the attention, things were meager from the very start. And real problems started in August of 1607, so not many months after they arrived, right. when bad water and mosquitoes led to a wave of illnesses that killed a lot of the settlers and weakened just about everyone in the colony. Captain Christopher Newport arrived with two ships of supplies in early 1608. But not long after that big assistance and that big bolstering, Jamestown caught fire and it destroyed most of the provisions and the equipment. And the colony essentially had to start from scratch. Captain John Smith, who had been named as one of the seven council members to run the colony, eventually took control of it. And he was made president of the colony in September of 1608. And he has this sort of reputation of being the man who saved Jamestown. Like he was really the one that came in and got people's acts together. But he had been accused of plotting a mutiny while on the way over from England. So he had been a late addition to the council. There was a lot of resistance, even though he was named as one of the people in charge. There was a lot of resistance to actually letting him fill that role. And he was also one of the council's least experienced members. And as you said, he put rules and discipline into place, and he really fortified the colony's defenses. Uh, and he also tried to put a stop to some of the laziness problems they were having. It was pretty rampant in the colony. with, um, And he set up the rule, he that will not work shall not eat, except by sickness he be disabled. So he who doesn't work doesn't eat. Uh, just to set up a situation of you have to do your part if you want to continue to live here. You can't just lie around and yeah. watch other people work and then still get food. 
The colony made it through the winter of 1608 and 1609 by making increasingly desperate trades with the local Native Americans. They had planned on trading things like copper and beads for corn. But as the winter went on and they started to run out of those things, people were making increasingly desperate trades. They were trading stuff that was more and more scarce and important, like their swords, to try to get food. And in the late summer of 1609, a fleet meant to bring supplies and additional settlers was scattered by a hurricane on the way to Virginia. One of the ships, the Sea Venture, wound up shipwrecked in Bermuda, uh, which you can hear about in our previous episode, the shipwreck that saved Jamestown. The remainder of the ships kind of hobbled into Jamestown to bring what they had after the storms. Uh, many of the people who arrived aboard this fleet were sick or injured or or dying. And there wasn't anywhere to house them in the fort. So they were sent out to bivouac in the cornfields. And they allegedly ate their way through all the corn that had been planted within a few days. Um, and this is really a running theme. Every time ships show up at Jamestown. They bring more supplies, but they also bring more mouths to feed and maybe also rats, which infested the corn that had been stored uh, and ate all of it. And this actually caused John Smith to, at one point, send some of the colonists elsewhere to try to live on fish and oysters because the corn was gone. It had either spoiled or been ruined by rats. But what really happened is they all just fought a lot and were slaughtered by the Native Americans. So while John Smith did seem to hold the colony better than the previous committee had, uh, as we said before, that committee was really a lot about infighting and not about leading things. Uh, he had his share of jealousy and, dis- and detractors from the rest of the colony's leadership. And in October of 1609, John Smith actually had to return to England after being severely burned by an exploding bag of gunpowder. And the circumstances around that are pretty mysterious. We don't really know the scoop. Uh, he was, though, at this point, on his way out as president of the colony anyway. New orders had arrived from England that Sir Thomas Gates, who was at that point sitting shipwrecked off of Bermuda, was going to be the man in charge. After Smith left, war broke out between the settlers and the Powhatan Indians. These were a collection of tribes who were all tied to Chief Powhatan. And Chief Powhatan's Powhatan's goal was to get rid of all the English settlers. He he was done with them and wanted them gone. So they lay siege to James Fort and stopped trading with settlers elsewhere. Um, the tribes killed livestock along with any settlers who left the protection of the fort's palisade. And the winter that followed has become sort of famously known as the starving time. Only about 60 of the settlers, who initially numbered between uh, 200 and 500, depending on the source that you see, survived. This was a really harsh winter. They ran completely out of food, and because of the siege, they couldn't go for help. Help couldn't really come to them from elsewhere. And they were all packed inside this fort. The fort was basically just a triangular palisade that surrounded a few wattle and daub thatch-roofed buildings, So on top of there being no food and this constant threat of attack from the Native American population, they were horribly overcrowded. So illness was rampant, and it's also possible that their drinking water was contaminated with arsenic and human waste. So at that point, acting governor George Percy had sent 50 men to try to trade with the Powhatan Indians, and only 16 of those 50 returned. 
Then he sent a ship up the Potomac River to try to trade with the tribes there. They did manage to secure some corn, but when they heard reports of cannibalism at the fort, they decided a better idea than to go back there was to go home to England. And that's what they did. So uh, completely out of food because they did not get that corn, the colonists were forced to eat rats, dogs, cats, horses, and even shoe leather. Apart from the other reports of cannibalism, there was also a report of a man who had killed his pregnant wife, butchered her, and salted her body to preserve the meat. Governor Percy had him hanged by his thumbs with his feet weighted until he confessed to the crime, and then as a punishment, he was burned alive. So I think this sort of speaks to what the mental state of the colony was at this point, that they had burned this man alive for... uh for killing and salting his pregnant wife. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. And Percy himself, 16 years later, wrote about people digging up bodies to eat them or licking up the blood from their, quote, their weak fellows. Uh, so it was an extremely desperate situation. I, I think it would be hard for most people to really imagine living through something like that. Right. And the, so the news reports that started making their way around in the spring of 2013 weren't really about a new theory about how the colonists made it through that winter. Uh, it's more about actual forensic proof of what people already suspected or maybe just took for granted. 
And the proof actually came from work that was being done at the Smithsonian. So Preservation Virginia found the skeleton and forensic anthropologist Douglas Owsley analyzed uh, the remains. And the study was a joint effort among the Smithsonian, Colonial Williamsburg and Preservation Virginia, which is a nonprofit that is dedicated to historic preservation. The bones are a tibia, which is a leg bone and part of a human skull. And they were found in a 17th century pile of refuse in July of 2012. This garbage pile was inside a cellar inside of James Fort, which was being excavated for an archaeological study. The cellar was filled in hundreds of years ago, probably during the efforts to clean up and rebuild the colony, which were started by a new governor, Thomas West, in 1610, after the starving time was over. And also in the pile were the bones of butchered animals. Uh, they found other partial human remains in the same area, but these particular remains that we're talking about had obvious damage that called for a closer investigation. They were also in the cellar under a layer of newer artifacts. So you can kind of imagine that there was this cellar. People had been throwing butchered animals into it. At some point, the structure above it had broken down and collapsed, and it became sort of a convenient place for people to just throw their trash. So there are whole layers of more recent artifacts over these bones. There's strata in there. Yeah. Uh, and the bones in question are a girl's bones, uh, estimated to be about age 14. And they can tell this from both the bones themselves and the condition of her teeth. So she had wisdom teeth and partially developed roots for them, but they hadn't yet broken through. And the growth plates in her tibia had started to close, which happens around in your early teen years. Uh, and they determined her sex by the shape of her skull. The team has named her Jane, and they've taken DNA samples, but it's pretty unlikely that they'll be able to link her up to modern relatives. Uh, the damage to the skull that they investigated included four shallow cuts with an attempt to break into the skull to get to the brain, uh, the shattering of the skull to get to the brain, and marks from two fine-bladed knives that were used to remove the face and the tongue. There are also cuts along her tibia, and the marks, when they look at them under heavy magnification, are consistent with known cannibalism from other cultures. So by comparing these cuts to other times when we know cannibalism was taking place, they look pretty similar. And if we also compare them to um, the cuts on the Jane skull to cuts on animal skulls, normally the butchering that you would see on animal skulls is much deeper. It's the uh, cuts are more forceful. But with Jane, they're not like that. They're hesitant and kind of tentative. So the overall analysis is that these cuts were made by people who were really desperate for food. Um, on top of not being used to butchering animals... Uh, you know, there's the obvious taboo element of what's going on. Uh, and that probably is one of the things that led to the fact that these cuts seem to be hesitant and unsure. The combination of not really being familiar with butchering and the just massive cultural taboo going along with, with what's happening. And the cuts also suggest that the brain and tongue were removed, which uh, it sounds really grisly to the modern ear, I think. But they were both very common pieces that would be used in recipes at the time. Like it, for an animal, it would be the same things that they would be taking. Right. So based on other evidence in the layer of the dig where she was found, uh, as well as some scientific study of her bones, they think that she arrived in Jamestown in August of 1609, probably along with the damaged fleet that had been scattered by the hurricane. 
And researchers used isotopic testing to determine where she came from and when. And based on the isotopes in her bones, they determined that she had been eating a European wheat-based diet, whereas the American diet at the time was based primarily on corn. And based on this evidence, uh, they've determined that she was probably middle to upper class, uh, a young woman born in the coastal plains of southern England, or she also could have been employed with a middle to upper class family and consequently was eating the same food that they would have been eating. The team used CT scans of all the pieces of her skull to make a model of what the whole skull would have looked like before it was damaged. Then a forensic sculptor created a reconstruction of what she actually would have looked like. What's not known in all of this is how she actually died. Uh, accounts from the time describe colonists living on the people who died first uh, rather than just killing them to eat them, apart from that case of the man who killed his wife. So uh, presumably Jane died of some other, of some natural cause, we hope, she wasn't killed for meat. Right, right. It, it, it does not appear that there's no evidence at this point to suggest that she was murdered and then eaten, but that she died in some other way and then was eaten. So the, this was all over the news when it came out. Yeah. In addition to it being all over the news, there's a whole section of the historic Jamestown site dedicated to her remains and to her story, along with a book and a video on DVD and Blu-ray ready for purchase and an exhibit at Historic Jamestown. So this right out of the gate, all kinds of stuff to explore about Jane, Jane and her story. Well, because I think you could pretty uh, easily predict that people would be fascinated and really engaged by this information. Yeah, based on our, our mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've done a lot. And our Facebook and Twitter and all that after, after it came out. Yeah, people really, really interested in it. Um, the excavation that this came from is an excavation of the Jamestown Fort site that has been ongoing since 1994. Uh, before that point, people thought that the original fort had washed into the river, like that it was considered to be a lost huh. site. And uh, it was discovered in 1994. And since that time, archaeologists have discovered uh, the palisade lines, bulwarks for the cannons, cellars, wells, burial sites, and more than a million other artifacts. So analysis will probably still be ongoing for quite some time. Yes. And we may get more new revelations about Jamestown. Yes. And more confirmation of, <laughs> of things people already yeah. suspected or knew. Uh, so, yeah, that is the story of Jane and the story of this uh, the starving time. In addition to it being bad enough that people resorted to cannibalism, it was bad enough that when the winter was over, the colonists were on the verge of abandoning the site. Uh, and they only didn't when new bosses showed up and were like, "No, we're staying here. Yeah. Here's some more. Here's some more equipment and, yeah. and more uh, mouths to feed." That's a lot. That's a lot to go through for a human. Yeah. So, so yes. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like people working on yachts? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on yachts? Are you always like? What goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosniak. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. We got Below Deck Mediterranean and Below Deck Sailing Yacht. 
And we're going to release an episode every Monday through Friday so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Since podcasters are the scum of the earth and below the people who work below deck, we record in the bowels of the boat. That's right. We're just two fabulous idiots trying to catch you up on one of the most wonderful shows on television with our self-proclaimed quirky and offbeat personalities. I never said that. Okay. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if I'm not mistaken, you also have listener mail. I have two listener mails. These are both about our recent episode, uh, The Princess Who Swallowed the Glass Piano. The first is from Laurie. Laurie says, I listened to your podcast about the lady who thought she swallowed a glass piano and thought it was fascinating. I was wondering about one thing you said, that the delusions occurred in people from the Middle Ages to the 19th century. Did people just stop getting this particular delusion for some reason? Can a kind of mental illness just die off? Or do doctors call it something else today? I really enjoy your podcast and will continue to work my way through the archive. So thank you, Laurie. The answer to this question is that... um, Around the 19th century, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists started changing the way that they classified mental disorders. Uh, We weren't quite to the point of the the diagnostic manuals that exist today, but uh, the the way that they looked at mental illnesses was a little different. And so there's no longer a broad category of like glass delusions, uh, but there are things that people believe that are not true that are kind of grouped in under mental illnesses, uh, under other mental illnesses. So... Uh, people can still have glass delusions. They're just categorized differently. Yes. There there are certainly people still who believe that they're breakable in one way or another. Uh, but that's usually lumped into some greater diagnosis than just a glass delusion. Um, the other that we got is from Molly. And Molly says, thank you for the research you do and your wonderfully insightful podcasts. Upon hearing your glass piano episode, I was reminded of a character from one of my favorite films, Amelie. The character is nicknamed the Glass Man. I had never questioned his history, but your story shed light on his reclusiveness and his relationship with Amelie, a woman who received no physical affection in her childhood. After feeling that I had exhausted the secrets and stories of these characters, you renewed my interest in them. Thank you for teaching me and helping me make this connection and many others. First of all, thank you, Molly. Yeah. Writing. I love that movie. I do too. I re- it's one it's of a my big favorite at our house. Yeah, it's one of my favorite movies ever. And I have always viewed him as having a real condition that does exist called FOP, which is a disease where your bones don't solidify correctly. Um, and so your bones are really fragile and breakable. And it's the same thing that um, Samuel L. Jackson's character has in Unbreakable. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I've always thought of that as a real thing. But reading it as maybe something that's all in his head, I kind of... It adds a fun layer to that movie. I need to go rewatch it now uh, and think of it that way instead of thinking it as like a real actual condition that he is affected by. Yeah. So thank you very much, Molly. And thank you also, Laurie. If you would like to write to us about this or anything else, you can. We are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff and on Twitter at Missed in History. You can find our Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. Plus, we are on Pinterest. If you would like to learn more about the grisly subject matter of today's episode, you can go to our website, put the word cannibalism in the search bar, and you will find how cannibalism works. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks. We all dream to play, grind in and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.